0: Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to our podcast. This episode is brought to you by our dear friends and colleagues over at Risinger Homes. They're an Austin based full service luxury home builder and remodeler, and we've worked with them on many occasions. And Risinger Homes really is a different kind of firm. First, they're focused on building science, which we think is incredibly important. And I encourage you to check out the YouTube channel of their owner, Matt Reisinger. It's at youtube.com backslash user backslash Matt Reisinger. Be sure to subscribe. And secondly, we've seen time and time again, how much architects really appreciate the seamless experience of working with a builder who has an in-house architect slash builder. Reisinger Homes has exactly that person. His name's Eric Rouser. So architects, call Risinger Homes early in the design phase of your projects so we can team up with you and your client to build a great home. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome Welcome to the the Building Building Science Science Podcast. Podcast. Bringing the human factor to construction, design, and architecture.
1: Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello, hello and welcome everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Erwin with Positive Energy here in Austin and I have two guests today. Uh, We are talking about indoor sound quality. This is part of our indoor environmental quality series and I'm very pleased to have with me John Posnecker and Keith Simon. John is a PE and mechanical engineer, background from Auburn University. He worked for many years Uh, with an acoustical construction company, working with acousticians and acoustical consultants. He is currently the Grunt Grand Poobah and a senior engineer at Terracon and uh, a BES principal. Keith Simon is a senior architect at BES Terracon. He's also an adjunct faculty at the UT School of Architecture. He is also a friend of the podcast and a frequent contributor here you've heard him before. Welcome gentlemen.
2: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Yeah. So the topic today is sound. Uh, We're going to focus it mainly for uh, general uh, indoor acoustics for residences and commercial. There are lots of uh, specialty environments that we need to uh, have special considerations for. Some of that might come up during the podcast. Some of it might not. As a mechanical engineer doing design of heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems, sound is in my daily repertoire. It's something I'm thinking about. We always want to move air fast enough to get it to throw and mix in the room to make the space comfortable, but slow enough so that it doesn't go doesn't make sound. And actually John just pointed out, we were talking before this, that sometimes you want that, right John?
2: You can put white noise generators or you can have the air velocity do it for you.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've talked about that actually on a different podcast I don't know if it came up but I know we've talked about radiant heating and cooling and I heard about um, I believe it was an office space in Washington D.C. where they went with radiant heating and cooling and it was so quiet that it made people like every time they would talk, you'd hear it across the room. In
2: an open office concept, you want some privacy, or at least from the speech intelligibility, so that they can not understand the conversations next door.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. So there's speech intelligibility, where you want some noise. There's also um, your bedroom, where people typically want it pretty quiet, right? Or is white noise appropriate in a bedroom? What do you guys think?
3: Probably not, so um, usually, well let me just jump into here one of the the common misconceptions with acoustic design is using um taking a room and designing it acoustically for the wrong properties so in other words some spaces reverberation is a good thing like a performance space um, with think of like the extreme a gothic cathedral Mm -hmm. where the greater the reverberation the better and if we can actually define it and say it could have like an eight second reverberation time meaning that um when a a sound is created it, it takes approximately eight seconds for that sound to degrade 60 decibels essentially vanish um so but then it depends on the kind of space so let's say we're talking about a space that's designed to promote talking like a classroom or a lecture hall or a podcast studio then your reverb your goal reverb time might be about one second or less maybe like 0.8 seconds and then so you don't want too much because if you have too much reverb then the the sounds mix together and there's unintelligibility <coughs> John's already ready to disagree with me. Well, the type
1: now, of music that you're putting in that space, or...
2: As you'll learn, Keith, and I to debate all the time <laughs> about this. So a live room isn't necessarily bad if it's the reflections are Live room meaning what? A more reverberant room. Okay. So uh, Hard a service. large uh, auditorium. You don't want to deaden it completely. You want it live so you don't have to have as much uh, amplification of the sound. Mm-hmm and have natural sound Mm -hmm. but you've got to control the reflections so if the reflection you get four or five different reflections hitting the audience from different locations at different times you don't understand what's being said but if you control the reflections so that you don't get those delays then you hear it without much amplification right
3: so i actually do agree with john on that (laughs) maybe i just didn't explain it well you never you never really want zero reverb time or the least amount of reflection at all like even in say a classroom setting or a lecture hall if you had close to zero zero reverb time would be outside right outside there is no reflection so any sound never comes back it's all one directional
1: unless you're in a canyon right
3: right and then we you get into echo which is related to reverb but a little different but anyway <clears throat> if you had close to zero in a space Number one, the person speaking wouldn't be able to hear themselves and they would start talking louder and louder and louder to make up for it. Um, so you, that that's not really what you want. But certainly, John, you can agree with me when I say a long reverb time, something extreme like a Gothic cathedral would not work for a lecture because that sort of mixing of sound that works for music is um,
2: detrimental to listening to uh, the human voice. I'll give you a point there. <laughs> But you can control the reflection and diffuse that reflection so that it's not one directional. Mm-hmm. Right, and so but we should probably talk
3: about massive ref- hard reflective surfaces versus soft squishy absorptive materials. Correct. And so when you're designing a room acoustics, first you have to decide the goal, like. You know, do you want to promote reflection or do you want to limit reflection? So, earlier we're talking about an open office plan. That's the kind of space you really want a lot of absorption and not a lot of reflection because um, people talking can annoy people who are nearby, or even worse, it could be a a privacy concern. And so, that's why there's a drive in office areas to the extreme to have lots of gray squishy materials so that you have a lot of sound absorption. And also, it, for other reasons too, the lighting it gives homogenous lighting, uh, and these. Um, I was
1: wondering how gray affected the sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. That's more about the homogenous lighting, homogenous sound, and ultimately it. it Frequently open offices are pushed too far in that direction, I would say, and are, it can be a little bit soul-sucking. Um, so there has to be a little bit of a balance. Is that you a technical
1: want, term? Yes, yeah, yeah, soul-sucking. sucking is measured in...
2: Absolutely. <laughs> ...DB? And, and you see more of the fabrics and absorption materials, right? Not the hard uh, finishes and floor surfaces and ceilings that are hard. That's right. Car-
3: carpeting, for example, Um, You could have an acoustic ceiling tile or acoustic ceiling panel. There are lots of ways to introduce soft materials as opposed to just the squishy gray cubicles Mm -hmm. in an office area. Um, But there's another misconception which I want to point out, which is there's room design and room acoustics. And you have to have the right goal. Do I want to promote reverberation or do I want to limit reverberation? But there's also noise control between two distinct spaces. So that's the partition that's separating those two spaces. The strategy for that is massive materials. You don't want to rely on soft, squishy materials because then sound can transmit right through those and won't be, um, and will. And so a mistake, for example, that's frequently made in an off, open office environment is that the, uh, the partition doesn't go all the way up to the roof deck. It stops at the drop ceiling level. And what happens is the sound from one space transmits some percentage of it transmits through that ceiling tile and bounces down in the space next door. So you, you do need to provide that the uh, partition all the way up to the deck, And sound being a fluid medium can easily be short-circuited. So if there are breaches in that partition, say, an electrical outlet that's not well-sealed, it doesn't run to the deck, a keyhole in a door, you can actually get a lot of sound transmitting through those little breaches. And and a couple
2: of concepts. So to block sound, you typically add mass, Mm -hmm. right? And that your, your good barrier materials are very dense materials. Also, if you get variations in layers of different... Densities. Densities, it tends to block the sound. Mm -hmm. Um, Over the top of a partition wall, above an acoustical ceiling is a typical area. A lot of times we'd hang uh, loaded barium vinyl, very dense vinyl that's about an eighth inch thick. To create a barrier was less expensive than framing the wall up to the deck. Interesting. Um, And that was
1: to create acoustic privacy between two adjacent offices. Correct.
2: Then the other means is the ductwork right? Yes. That transmits noise. So you may have a common duct that runs between offices or rooms and it's a great conduit for noise. Mm -hmm. And typically the interior of the duct is very reflective and carries it down.
1: Right. Um,
2: And then the outlets it's surprising how outlets or door thresholds and seals, um, very small cracks, almost like when we talk about the envelope and air barriers, yeah. Uh, you could think the same way with your acoustical walls and ceiling for noise. Hmm. Uh, very so small little, cracks. Very now. little cracks, noise transmits. It's amazing how it transmits.
1: And they make acoustic cocks and acoustic putties and things to like that. To seal up, put in Right. Business. Seals and
2: gaskets. Yeah, it's interesting. John and I do a
3: lot of consulting on um, multifamily construction. And. Um, you know, multifamily construction sometimes can be notorious for not being sort of penny pinching in terms of the building enclosure. However, we walk around these multifamily, and they're actually really sort of impressive in terms of their acoustic control between units. You see a lot of double stud walls, so that there's not continuity from one side of the partition to, Just to another. Raise that STC rating across that wall. Yeah, STC. So that stands for sound transmission class. And that's a rating of how much noise is transferring through a partition. So for example if it's an STC of 55 then that means the um, sound that on one side of a partition reduces 55 decibels to the other side. So the higher the STC rating the more sound is being blocked from transmitting. And then we see other strategies such as resilient channels which is like these little how would you describe that? Like a metal channel. Like a hat channel? Yeah, like a hat channel, but with only a flange on one side. So right. you can imagine it's attached to the studs, and then the drywall is attached to the resilient channel, but if the resi- if the drywall vibrates, it's less less it has less ability to immediately transfer that vibration through the partition. So there's a lot of actually pretty interesting strategy and that kind of leads into
2: the concept of structure-borne noise you put the resilient channel so you minimize the sound vibration carried through the structure to come out the other side hmm there mm-hmm. are cap ceilings gyp ceilings that are hung in isolated hangers that prevent the vibration from going through the deck above and, and create increasing that STC rating I see
3: so let me um, define vibration for a second here
1: Right, so vibration is separate from sound.
3: Well, okay, so let me back up a You're second. Talking about structure. If we're going to define sound, we usually um, Let's define-, define sound. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so we can define sound in terms of frequency and amplitude. So if we think of sound as a wave phenomenon, and you can imagine it as like we can represent it as a sine wave, and the height of that sine wave we call the amplitude the higher that's, that sound wave is, the louder. So amplitude is volume. And then there's frequency. So that sine wave, if it's going up and down within a certain amount of material lots of times, that's high frequency, it's a higher pitch. If it's a much longer sine wave, it's lower, lower pitch. And at a, we, our threshold, our ears can only have a, um, only have a certain threshold that we can hear. If you go so low, such a long sine wave, that we can no longer hear it, but we can feel it, that's vibration. So vibration is basically sound energy that you can't hear, but you can feel it. Now in terms of building acoustics...
1: When it's in the air.
3: That's right. No, No. not when when it's in the air. uh, Well, everything
2: you just said is relative to the medium that's carrying the wave is air in our ears. Correct. When you go from air into another substance, water, the building structure, concrete, wood. It's a little different, but same concept. Right,
3: right. What I,
2: All I was trying to get at
3: there was that usually when we're talking about building acoustics, the medium through which the sound energy passing is air, that's most of the time what we're talking about, but structure, steel, wood, concrete, becomes extremely important when we're talking about vibration. And it becomes so important yes. that if we're talking about a high rise, and the mechanical room is in the basement, and the, there's no sound decoupling of the mechanical system, that hammer strike can be felt in the penthouse, you know, 100
2: stories up. But think of it as still a vibration through the medium of the structure rather than through the air. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's still a wave pattern that goes through the structure. Right. And I always was amazed, if you think of whales in the ocean, their sound travels a huge distance much faster than the distance it would travel in the air and the speed, mm-hmm. and the medium makes that difference. It's really an odd, and in a concrete structure, it's really odd how an impact 10 stories down for some reason will come out above with about the same sound power or, or, or loudness. Yeah, it,
3: and it has to do with the density of the material. So the denser right. the material, the the faster the propagation of sound energy. So for, for you musicians out there, you can imagine a tuning fork and you strike it, right? And you hold it in the air and it's a certain volume. And then if you take that tuning fork and you put it on a table, for example, all of a sudden it becomes much louder, right? And that's because the sound energy now is transferring through that dense material of the wooden table.
1: Interesting, that that, that, that sort of surprises me. So you, if I-
2: Yeah, t- I gotta think about that one.
1: If I bit. take a tuning fork and I touch it to the table, I feel like it's just going, to... It's just going to damp out and stop making sound. So Miguel's a Am I holding it near the table but not touching it to the table? No,
3: if it's transferring through air, the second you touch it to the table, it becomes very loud. I wish I had a tuning fork so we could play it right now. But you know what I'm talking about, right?
0: So when you take a tuning fork and you strike it and it's vibrating, when you touch it to a surface like this... It will simulate an amplifier, basically but the sound is going to pitter out faster than it would had you just kept holding it up in so the So basically
2: air. in a tuning fork, it's all coming out in the air once you hit a solid surface, right. it now reflects back up and increases the sound power. So it's kind of like it's another concept in a gymnasium. If you have a very reverberant room and you have a sound source, the reverberations bounce back at you. So you're getting impacted by the same source several times. So, you get a higher level of energy and sound. Where if you stop the reflections with absorptive materials, the sound level goes down from the same source.
0: Right. And then and another good way to think about it is the difference in loudness between a string pluck on an electric guitar
3: and an acoustic guitar. Yeah, that's a really good comparison there. And sometimes that's the case with performance halls. In other words, if a performance hall is designed well for a certain kind of performance, whether that's opera or music or um, plays where it's speech, you probably don't need electric amplification because wherever you're sitting within there, the reflections are gonna be the same experience throughout. However, if either it wasn't designed well or you want to do a kind of performance that it wasn't designed for so for example it's designed for say a chamber quartet and then you want to have a um or the opposite let's say it was designed for an opera and then you but you want to have a chamber recital in there then you may need electronic reinforcement or an electronic sound system basically to make up for the lack of um, natural acoustics that are occurring in the space and so this goes back to our early discussion about white noise which is we've sort of jumped right into like you can use white noise to drown out sounds or noise unwanted sounds discussion etc but i would argue that that's sort of if it wasn't designed right if it was designed correctly you wouldn't need the white noise and so i've never actually seen a mechanical system that was intentionally designed for white noise i've seen it being you know it's <laughs> it happens to be good white noise but i'm curious if you guys have actually
2: intentionally done it that way I have not. I've seen where they've modified the mechanical system so they reduce that noise. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then we came in and added, or a contractor came in and added white noise generators.
1: Correct. Right. So like, so, co-working spaces, you, you actually want some white noise. Because the, the hissing sound, privacy. usually
2: out of a diffuser, is at that speech frequency. Mm-hmm. It creates that, and that's what it is, it's just creating a noise. That's at the speech frequency. so that And it's not saying you're not going to hear the people talking next door, but you won't be able to understand the conversation. That's the speech intelligibility part. So I'm, I'm going to say something that
3: I know is going to make John's eyes roll. <laughs> and you, every, our listeners won't be able to have the uh, fortune of watching him roll his eyes now. But I would say um, white noise is when you throw out a bunch of frequencies to just generally obscure the sound so you can't there's no intelligibility Pink noise is what you just described which is its frequencies that are specifically selected in order to drown out the human voice So that's what I would uh, my understanding is what pink noise is. There's also Acousticians out there who are developing other noises. You can go to Wikipedia and see like read about brown noise and blue noise, and red, that goes way beyond the scope of building acoustics, or what I understand. But um, from my understanding anyway, pink noise is specific frequencies to drown out human voice, and white noise is kind of just a whole, throwing out a whole bunch of different frequencies and drown out
2: everything. And surprisingly, I, I agree with you. I've heard the concept, I don't know if it's pink, blue, or green, but there are different types of noise generators for different reasons. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes you talk back into the now active noise control is another feature that if you have a constant noise source, they design another source that reflects the sound waves so that you don't hear that noise. Exactly. Um, and so you can in electronically create. In mm-hmm. power plants, it was really effective because you have that constant turbine frequency mm-hmm. that you could very well in headphones negate by another source bouncing that sound back it's it's an interesting concept
1: yeah and and they're using something similar I mean you can do electronic sound design in in of architectural sound design you can you can fix a space or damage a space Um, I guess you wouldn't want to damage electronically but what they're doing is they're taking like a small room and you can make it seem like a concert hall or you can take a concert hall and make it seem like a small room with these uh, sensors that pick up sound and then an adjacent or some other speakers electronically coupled coupled to make the offsetting frequencies
2: right. um, and a lot of times in big uh, stadiums you know they're there for sport sporting events they're not made for concerts but they bring performers in and have concerts so it's a it's a fairly sophisticated amplification system to get good quality of the performer compared to what the facility really does. It's not an acoustical type facility. Right, good. We
0: simulate something very similar in this very podcast with the very few microphones that we have. I take the audio that's recorded with these microphones and actually run it through multi-band equalizers that are meant to weaken or strengthen different frequency bands. And so there are different parts of the of the frequency that we hear that make something sound very robust on a recording or very natural. But if I you know jammed things up right in the middle of the frequency bands that you're used to hearing, it's going to sound like you're talking in a tin can. Wow, maybe you can do that. All right, so yeah, let's let's do that. So let's simulate what reverberation actually sounds like. Reverb. So what you've just heard is essentially a digital simulation of what keith was discussing earlier that reverb the reverberation it's basically just the persistence of sound after the sound is actually produced and that persistence is caused by reflections of that sound on different surfaces. So it could be just a single reflection and you hear a slight, very tiny reverb, or it could be a number of reflections and you hear that deep well-like sound. But eventually those surfaces start to break up the sound waves and that's what we call decay. And that's when you actually hear the sound start to cease or taper off. In a similar boat, it's easy to imagine a sound actually echoing like in a canyon. Here's what that sounds like.
2: Echo! Echo! Echo!
0: Echo. So what you're hearing there is actually the reflection of a sound that arrives to the listener. And of course, again, this is digitally simulated, uh, but after the direct sound is produced. So that delay is proportional to the distance of the reflecting surface from the source and the listener. Obviously, you don't want to have a lot of echoes in an indoor environment. And here's what it sounds like whenever we crank the mid-range really high. And now the upper range of our frequency bands and now the lowest of our frequency bands long story short sound is complicated and there are a lot of fun ways that you can manipulate it digitally Uh, but back to the point of the podcast it's important to get this stuff right because you can't digitally simulate your actual experience inside a piece of architecture so Okay. So I, th- I
3: think the um, the subject, though, of uh, different performance venues and the types of music that fit in them are is really fascinating. And there's actually a 15-minute mm-hmm. TED Talk you can find on YouTube by David Byrne of The Talking Heads, yeah, where he kind of gives great. a history of different types of venues and the types of music that fit in them. Um, so stadiums is like, you know, there there is zero reverberation. It's outdoors. It's all one directional. But another one that's sort of fun to think about is reverberation, reverberation time is based on two factors. One is the amount of reflective and hard surfaces in the space, but also the volume of the space. And so a Gothic cathedral with an eight second reverberation time can somewhat, some way be mimicked in a racquetball court, because even though the racquetball court is small in volume and it's got all these hard surfaces. So that's another fun thing you can see on YouTube that there's like this niche of musicians who perform in racquetball courts because it's kind of like an easy access way of performing at this very special musical re- environment instead of go having to, you know, travel somewhere to find a gothic cathedral to uh, perform in.
1: Mhm. Interesting. So I want to that is very interesting. And I want to go back. You were you were talking about um, sort of architectural acoustic design of these multifamily buildings. Um, so, besides making sure adjacent spaces, like the so different apartments, so space acoustics is not happening. Are they? Do you think they're doing other things like shaping rooms in certain ways or choosing materials for rooms to promote good acoustics? Or- no, what? nothing
3: that sophisticated. Um, so, code will require multifamily to have a certain STC rating between. Partitions between spaces. That's right. And um, really, it's so that's like we said an STC rating. There's also IIC. I believe that's the right term. Impact and also, isolation well, class, which is floor yeah. to
2: ceiling. Mm-hmm. They also have the STC requirement on the floors mm-hmm. and a impact rating on the floors. So what does that mean? The impact rating. It means if you walk on a floor like I'm tapping my finger on the table, you hear it on the floor below. That's the impact noise traveling through the structure. So they'll do a couple of things. One, they'll increase the STC rating by pouring gypcrete on the floor and Mm -hmm. providing a mass layer, right? And then they'll have a sound bending pad below the gypcrete to reduce that impact noise because you're adding a hard surface that will pick up the noise, the impact noise, but then they put a layer so it doesn't transmit to the floor below Mm -hmm. and you get
1: additional mass and you get changes in mass in that assembly so all that just a way to point out that this concept of interior sound quality um you know i talk a lot about interior air quality which you take pretty specific measures what do you bring into the house how do you filter it all these things but sound quality considerations are somewhat implicit in conventional construction paradigms, right? I mean, it's just sort of built in, like this pouring jibcrete and putting this pad. Um, People might not know why they're doing it, but they always do it. I guess they know. There are
2: things in just your house, right, Mm -hmm. that a garage door opener, it transmits noise into your structure and you hear it throughout the house sometimes. Yeah. And a lot of times people would put a home theater above their garage and would go crazy with the garage door (laughs) opener. So you have to isolate that, that noise source from the structure.
1: Yeah. With a vibration uh, isolator?
2: A lot of times they would do that. Yeah. Either you put a floating floor in to isolate the floor from the structure and your walls, or you hang that garage door opener and isolate it from the structure. The other thing that's interesting is the shape, say, of especially ceilings maybe in a commercial buildings. Interesting. You know, barrel ceilings uh-huh. are really neat but they focus, have a focal point for the noise. Domed ceilings in some rooms uh, or churches uh, are popular, but they have a very distinct focal point. And, and if you ever go to Las Vegas, and I think it's the Forum it has several large domed areas, Yeah. have fun and just walk through the center of the room and you'll hear that noise all of a sudden, just tripling sound in the center from the focal point. So just the shapes of your rooms, you know, make a big difference.
3: Yeah, I want to add to that, um, that there's concave and there's convex. And so concave, like John's describing of a dome, for example, has a tendency for sound to creep along it. And also focusing that instead of spreading out the sound, the sound is focused to a point. So concave shapes have a tendency to be uh, very bad for room acoustics. The opposite convex shapes are actually really good because the sound energy bounces off convex shape and is spread throughout the, the, the space. So as an example, if anybody, folks are familiar with the main lecture hall in Goldsmith at UT, the, the architecture building along the side of the walls, there are all these stones in convex shape, or sometimes like the inside of a, music, of a guitar or a violin, it's convex and that allows the sound to be spread out. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was um, there's some interest in, in prefabricated construction. And so one of the inefficiencies of, imagine like a multifamily area where you were gonna, in a factory somewhere, fabricate each of the living units and then ship them onto site and put them together as Lincoln Logs. Well, the inefficiency with that is it has to have all of its walls and roof and everything. So when you, it shows up, there's two walls. So in terms of cost and efficiency, there's an inefficiency to it, but for a, a um, construction project like multifamily or apartments where acoustic separation between those units is really important, it's awesome because they, they're they're completely isolated from each other. So that that's an opportunity where prefabrication might make sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I've been in a lot of restaurants recently, switching uh, to sort of the human experience in a commercial setting and found that i'm sitting across the table from my wife and i basically have to shout at her to be heard and my wife's kind of soft-spoken so i basically can't hear her and yet these are very popular restaurants and, and no one seems to notice and i happen to have a sound meter on my phone and um it's measuring sound power no no it's measuring sound pressure and by the way all you guys listening you can download just go to the app store and put in sound meter you can pull one out and it's like an 85 dB right in this restaurant and so I'm curious I I know I put a number to it but do you guys have a is there a target number when an acoustician is designing um, the sound pressure for a space for humans to talk I mean I guess there's a certain frequency range as well a very Um.
2: non-scientific theory there is it depends on the restaurant if they want to have tables turned several times through a night, they don't care about the noise level.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: Um, if they're a high-end restaurant that's willing <laughs> to have one table sitting per table per night, and they want that to be an experience.
1: Oh my goodness, John. So you, th- you mean so they're basically... The,
2: I don't know if that's I say, true, I've always heard that restaurant's about like, restaurants, like,
1: That's great. Right? So when I say to my wife, let's get out of here, I can't hear what you're saying. The restaurant's like, good, next client, next client's going to be sitting.
3: So I've heard that theory too, <laughs> that um, they actually don't want you to be too comfortable because they want high turnover on the tables. The other theory I've heard is that by being loud, it feels happening. Like it's a, it's a hot location. Yeah. Well, personally, energy. personally, I don't believe either one of them because especially for a high-end restaurant and I don't want to mention any names, but <laughs> this is a, a wonderful restaurant, really expensive. Why would you want to chase people out and make it feel happy? You don't have to do that. You want people to be comfortable. Yeah. So I, and, and at that particular restaurant, I went up to the uh, maitre d' and said, are you happy with the acoustics in this place? She said, to me, "No, they're awful. I said, well, um, you know, adding absorptive material to make it a more comfortable environment is not that hard to do. Um, so, you know, she wasn't particularly interested in hearing my ser- services I had to offer. But I find that's that's true a lot in in restaurants around town. I have a more cynical view of why that is, which I believe that our generation of architecture is, to quote Juhani Palazma is focused on ocular centrism, which means the above and beyond, it's all about what it looks like, instead of the experience of it. And if you care about the experience of the design, then. What it, be, what it feels like in terms of temperature, what it smells like in terms of indoor air quality, and what it sounds like, can not only be as important as what it looks like, but a whole lot more important in terms of performance and experience. But unfortunately, I feel like it's just, sound is way, way down low on the
2: priority list. Uh, in in for restaurants, and there's a little truth in this, they have some uh, need for cleaning and food service criteria, at least for the kitchen area. That absorptive materials typically aren't favorable to. If you have carpet in a restaurant, it gets extremely dirty fast and requires replacement. Fabric walls absorb a lot of things that a hard surface won't. They're not easy to clean. So there's maybe some, some truth there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, they, you,
3: you could do enough probably material on the ceiling and the walls of, a, of a, an acoustic panel that has some ability to be able to be cleaned and handle these, right. and have have your cake and eat it too.
1: Right. Yeah, so that restaurant was at 85. I actually went to a movie theater, not too much after that. Movie comes on, and you know, movies are loud when they come on. And it was like, holy moly, this is crazy loud. So I'm holding my ears, and I'm like thinking, am I just getting old? Am I, and I look around, everyone around me has their ears held. So I go out. I you know, took my sound meter. Actually measured. It was 130 dB, which is like a roaring jet engine, right? So I go out and tell them, and they ended up turning it down. But um, you know, it's just striking how theater know,
2: design is very unique, and you would think it? it's very sophisticated in its uh, separation between. Well, this was just theaters, up to that. Uh-huh. but the sound amplification systems—they take a lot of pride in the different technologies for those. Do they? Uh, they integrate a little bit in the room acoustics and they have criteria for each technology what that room acoustic requirement is but you'll notice sometimes you hear the really low bass noise traveling through yeah from the next door you never hear the high-end frequencies and that's the energy levels are different. it's very hard to block a low frequency noise and it, it through a through a wall or a structure.
1: Mm-hmm. actually we let's just talk about the frequencies for a minute so the frequencies you know, you always hear this from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, and hertz is a cycle of second. So Keith was talking about those waves. So 20 hertz would go up and down one wave 20 times every second. But what is it right now? Where I'm talking to you. Do you have a sense of what that? Is
2: F- it? 1500 is about the speech average speech okay. range. Is yeah, That's did. what I remember. Like one to five thousand hertz. So in terms of the size
3: of these waves. If we're talking about the the high sort of the highest pitch we can hear, like around twenty thousand hertz, those sound those sound waves would be like an inch or a couple inches long. If we're talking about the other end, the the low frequency sound, think of like you're
1: talking uh, about the wavelength now. The wavelength. the wavelength, yeah,
3: the actual wavelength. If we're talking about the low end of what we can hear, so like a double bass or you know something real real low, but you can still hear it before it's pure vibration, then we're talking like fifty feet long. So, you know. The size of a classroom or a lecture hall one sine wave one wavelength would be that long so you know we, we look at it graphically like a sine wave in order to define wave phenomena but probably a, a better analogy to think about sound energy or the wave phenomenon sound energy is if you drop a pebble in in water and it radiates in all different directions So, I think that's important, right? It's not typically one direction like a sine wave, but it's all round. Uh,
2: And that's a good example. A pebble gives small waves, Mm -hmm. a boulder will give you big waves. So, it's like high frequency, low frequency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, took more energy. And and if I were me, you probably can, Christoph, you've done this, thought about this technically more than I have recently. But the area under your sine wave is the power. Mm -hmm. So, a long wave with a high peak. Has much more power than the same peak for a short wave. That's exactly right. Which is around.
0: Is that that hundred hertz level that you're hearing the low bass through a wall in a theater?
2: Yeah, and that's why it's so hard to stop because it has so much power through it. Right. To to stop that. So let me let me try to explain the
3: other reason why low frequency sound it's hard to stop it through a partition. And going back to this water analogy, you drop a pebble in the water and it ripples out. Or imagine in the ocean like actual waves. So the the obstruction that that wave hits versus the size of it is very important. So imagine like there's a a buoy or like a post in the water in the ocean and you drop a pebble. The size of that post relative to the wave that's coming at it, the post is very large. So when that ripple from the pebble hits that post, it bounces off of it mm-hmm. and gets reflected and that's sort of like high frequency, high pitch sound is shorter and it more easily reflects off of these obstacles. Now, if you take that post and imagine a giant wave, like an ocean wave, like a tidal wave, coming at that post, the size of that post relative to the wave is very tiny. And that wave just barrels right over top of it. And so that's the same thing with low frequency sound and music or double bass or vibration. It's, it's very difficult with small architectural elements to stop that sound. And for those of you who can't see John, he's. I'm really
2: thinking hard about that.
3: (laughs) He's very skeptical right now. No, but but, I I agree agree with what you're
2: saying because we want to block a lot of sound with very thin elements, and it's difficult. And sound, I mean, again, it's
3: a fluid medium. And so, for example, the Mopac Improvement Project, one piece of that is trying to block the sound with very large walls on the side of the highway. Well, that is somewhat effective but one of the reasons why it's not too effective is because the sound that's coming from the highway it's a fluid medium that can just roll right over that so it has to be very tall and
2: very close to the source and block the right kind of pitch that's true but on a barrier wall like that on a highway uh, think of sound just like you do light it will diffract around a corner Mm -hmm. right sound does the same thing over the top
1: yeah right
2: so it's very difficult to build a wall tall enough to block noise 100 or 200 yards away from the wall. Right behind the wall, it does a great job, but not further away, you know, on the on the, the street past the wall. And also, Makes sense.
3: You, there's places where you have to get in and out off the highway where obviously that wall is going to stop, so
2: if your house is near those openings, it's gonna be much less effective. Right. The other thing a wall does is reflect the sound. So it may block it from getting right to the other side of the wall but it reflects it now so the other side of the highway gets that wash of sound. So the profile on the wall you'll notice is sometimes designed as a diffuser. So it's not a flat reflective surface but diffuses the sound in several directions.
1: They, They aren't flat, that's right.
2: But if you if you look at
3: highway sound walls in japan they're much more they they sort of curve in towards the highway almost if you see them from the outside it almost looks like the highway's in a tunnel to control that reflection from going back exactly and the the mopac improvement project there's another aspect to it which is quote unquote sound paving where they're developing a topping slab for the road itself which i believe is more porous with the idea that you the idea that you there's less friction between the wheels and the road so the source of sound is much smaller, and, and what I'm hearing in studies is that that part of the improvement project is much more effective than the sound wall at reducing the amount of sound
2: that's coming out. And if you if you ever look at the tire industry, they can do a lot of things to the tire design to change the noise, both basically for the passenger, the car is what they care about. But mm-hmm. you've ridden on tires that are really loud, and then some tires are really quiet. Yeah. Yeah. So Definitely. it's another interesting part of uh, the noise. Mm-hmm. But the, the surface of the road also has a big difference.
1: Mm-hmm. So we'll, so I was getting back to that the power level thing, I, I'm kind of stuck on that. So 85 was a crazy loud restaurant. This 120 was just over the top loud theater. Like If they wouldn't have turned it down, I would have left. I'm like, no, I'm not sitting in this for an hour and a half. And, um, what is the threshold of pain? I mean, for me, it was around 120. Do you, do you have a sense of that?
2: Well, if you look, in, we, and we're covering all these aspects, so if you look at in industrial um, manufacturing plants, mm-hmm. you know, industrial hygienists look at their OSHA standards and requirements for the protection of the employees. At what point do you have to um, have a, a, a hearing protection program? Right. Do you know that one? Uh, I used to know. But I think eighty-five is where you have to have hearing protection,
1: and then there'll be like an eight-hour limit too. I mean,
2: there's a duration of time that they're right. exposed to it, and what your l- average level is, and then if you get over—I don't know if it's ninety-five or hundred—now they have to have to have double hearing protection. You may also have to have a uh, annual um, hearing hearing check. check to trend degradation, mm-hmm. and then I think the threshold that you just I don't know if you can't be in, but it would be at the 115, 120 level probably. Mm, okay. Equates, there's some tables you can look up that give you these levels and what it equates to a jet engine, you know, 10 feet away versus.
3: So, mm-hmm. so one
2: other distinction I want to make t- is that
3: um, you're talking about the sound power level, which is a measure of the source of sound. There's sound pressure level, yeah, which, which is a, me- a measure of the sound through the, me- the fluid medium whether it's air or vibration etc and there's another metric in there that i'm blanking on all of a sudden but anyway all of those are measured we look at them in terms of decibel Decibel is the met- metric and so one of the important things to note is that when something says it's this many decibels we don't necessarily know is it measuring sound power sound pressure or something else and so for our purposes in terms of general building acoustics and understanding I think it's it's enough for us to read it in decibels but for a, a true acoustician who's doing say like a, a high-end performance hall or um, a, a space that's very sensitive in terms of what kind of frequencies that simply knowing the decibel wouldn't be enough information for oh, them. i
1: understand yeah one's the source power mm-hmm. and that's the source of the sound and then it creates a pressure in the space
3: mm-hmm.
1: it's it, it reminds me when you and i were speaking to matthew about luminance and illuminance yeah it's, it's an analogous
2: uh, if you get into the analytical aspects of all this you have to get into all of those details mm-hmm. but the basic concepts that i like dealing with are really pretty simple you know that you can apply every day or to your house or to anything You know, right and that, that's how i wanted to wrap up actually has it, what would be some of those basic concepts for good sound design i, I think blocking sound means you add mass between you or distance and yeah. avoid short circuits, breaches. Like avoid short circuits and, and pass paths that allow the sound to get through,
1: like small gaps. So I could put double sheetrock on that wall between you know this room and that. It would make a big difference. But if there was an outlet that lined up with another outlet, it you, would make you exactly would notice it that just way.
3: like air sealing.
1: Oh wait, wait, wait. So you said it would make. Wait, wait. So if I have two outlets that line up, even though let's say I have double sheetrock on both walls, I have
2: four layers of sheetrock. So the STC rating of that wall would be really high.
1: And then I, I could dramatically degrade it, though, by
2: putting If you had back-to-back outlets. outlets that weren't sealed, you may not notice that barrier because you have an open path for the sound.
1: There you go. Okay, okay.
2: So we were... So here's... here's since we're you not- mentioned double
3: sheetrock, here's a very practical piece of advice is that frequently when people are doing design and they want to throw out a quick, easy way to increase the um, acoustic separation or STC value, I'll hear, well, let's throw another sheet of sheetrock on there. If you do that, uh, you take a, a partition, you just add another sheet of sheetrock, your STC rating goes up by about three, three decibels. The change in sound of three decibels is imperceptible. Right. You would never mi- be able to perceive that difference. Really? So if you, because it's and because it, it's logarithmic, you need to, like at least a six okay. decibel, decibel change in, in well, STC. So careful to, now to th- you're talking <laughs> decibels in STC. Right? Because an STC of 55 would be a change in decibel perception of 55 decibels from one side of the partition to the other. At what frequency? At Yeah, you're right. It it gets complicated pretty quickly,
2: but I'm thinking in terms of the human voice. Like and between I, I agree where you're going partners. with that. Just adding a layer of sheetrock doesn't get you as much as if you put a resilient channel in a layer of sheetrock. The problem is the expense and the dimension of the wall is, is harder to deal with. It's cheap and easy to add a layer of sheetrock and seal your openings is probably a bigger yeah. impact.
1: Yeah, that's what I was getting at, Yeah, so that's good. So what about the Resilient Channel? You can buy those anywhere? Sure,
3: those are pretty common and pretty easy to install. So that that would be, as long as you have the foresight to put it in your wall section, that would be an easy method. You can also, instead of sheetrock, there's a company called Quiet Rock that, um, I'm not sure the makeup, I think it's a higher porosity. It's pretty expensive to be honest. But that's kind of a one to one switch out. Just use this instead of
2: that, and you get a much higher There's a acoustic lot of things rating. on the market, and they're composite materials usually. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of snake oil up, or what do you call mm-hmm. it? You know, like acoustical paint. Now, tell me what that is. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. Uh, Radiant barrier paint. What, what about an exterior wall? What about a kind of acoustic assembly, or building assembly design from acoustic? Quality perspective, and I'm thinking about the acoustics of the indoor space. Actually,
2: act, same content, concepts apply. So, extra right.
1: mass extra again, mass, there,
2: sealing the wall up, right? Yeah, a lot so of your leaks
3: we'll come, come around much. <laughs> Maybe cut little that little out for me, start yeah. Again, here's an example. Here's an example. A project I was working on in Philadelphia, where we were we were designing a new public high school that was right next to an elevated train line. I mean, really close to the classrooms, and so it was very important to have really good acoustic separation. And our at that time, our acoustic consultant actually had us change from closed cell spray foam in the wall section to open cell because the porosity of the open cell had more absorption. So the sound transferring through that partition had an, a higher um, sound uh, STC
1: rating. Interesting. And they could have shaped the outside of the building? somehow to reflect sound away could that have been done but your convex or concave surfaces that yeah that know. would have been
3: would have been a tricky <laughs> well so that's an interesting one um, well let me finish talking about this school and okay. then we'll go to that but um, but as we know, we talk about heat, air, moisture, diffusion, etc. with wall section. That was in Philadelphia, where you need a vapor barrier on the interior side of the section. Because we went from closed cell to open cell, we didn't have that foam being in a vapor barrier, so we had to use a plastic sheet on the interior side. You never do that around here in Austin, but- Don't do that, do that <laughs> climate. Yeah, that right. was something we did there. Now, in terms of the exterior, when you're outside, trees and vegetation are like white noise and can mask sound. And so I've, I'll hear read in books, vegetation does not work for sound blocking. It's not mass, it doesn't block sound. But I have friends who live what? next to Mopac and they have lots of trees around their house. And when the tr- when there's no wind, I can hear the, the, the cars rolling on Mopac. But the second it gets windy and I hear the, the leaves rustling, all I, do, all I can do is hear the vegetation, I hear the trees, and the sound of the mopac just disappears behind it. So it I, essentially acts as white noise. I think
2: I'd argue though that if those trees weren't there, it would be louder. Because those trees diffuse the sound rather than having a direct path to you of the sound. What would be louder? The, the, the road noise. So the wind is creating its own It, it masks the noise, so. but mm-hmm. with vegetation and without vegetation, you do get some reduction. Scattered. scatters sound. So I think we're saying the same thing.
3: We're both saying that vegetation and trees are good for improved sound quality from
2: environmental conditions. You don't add a lot of mass, so you don't directly block the sound. But mm-hmm. you do diffuse it, so it's not a direct line to Yeah. It.
1: Yeah, I've seen a product on the side of buildings. It's been a few years, but it was called Quiet Brace. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. It's like oh. an asphalt impregnated or something.
3: Yeah, we I've seen it on a multifamily, a couple multifamily jobs. It's I believe extremely cheap hmm. and can be used as sheathing and you get some R-value, some additional R-value because of the the makeup of it, but it's real soft and it it's um, yeah. I would not recommend it just Free-ride. because it, as actual <laughs> sheathing, it does it doesn't work very well in terms of your cladding attachments and uh, applying a
2: water resistant barrier, etc. Diagonal bracing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought you were going to go to and it relates back what we've talked about restaurants. If you think of kitchen noise, a lot of the stainless surfaces, you hear a lot of clanging noise, which happens to be about the speech sound, and they'll dampen that by putting a mastic mass underneath on the metal so it doesn't reverberate the sound. we wrap up.
1: We'll go through some final comments and then all right, well, I think that's about call it a wrap. Um, my final comment is actually that indoor sound quality is something that is paid attention to in the way we deliver the built world to ourselves. However, as John said repeatedly, we, we want more mass um, and we're not putting a lot of mass generally in our walls. I mean, probably the most dense substance in most walls is Uh, the sheetrock possibly the cladding the fiber cement cladding Um, the point being that the sound of the interior is something that obviously matters we're immersed in it all the time Um, and the time to pay attention to it is at design Um, and actually furnishings right you can furnish a place differently yeah okay well so that was my final comment john anything
2: i think just the idea that A lot of, the takeaway maybe for most people would be the basic concepts are really simple. To understand how you block sound and how you control the reflection of the sound can make a big difference. And that sealing up openings in your wall will stop that transmission greatly also.
1: Good. Keith?
2: So I I agree that the basic concepts
3: are pretty simple and um, worth grasping. Um, but that I would reiterate that there's two sort of common misconceptions about um, number one that room acoustics do I want to increase the reverberation or limit the amount of reverberation versus are we talking about noise transmission and blocking sound between space so understanding what the goal is before coming up with strategies is really important and then the last thing I'll say is there's a great little book that um, is Very enjoyable if if anybody's interested in furthering their understanding about building acoustics by uh, Robert Apfel, A-P-F-E-L, and it's called Deaf Architects and Blind Acousticians.
1: Oh, beautiful. Okay, we'll also throw a link into the show notes for that David Byrne video, uh, that TED Talk. That was fascinating. Thank you, gentlemen. Great, wide-ranging, lively conversation. Appreciate you being here. Thank you, guys. Thanks.